0: And our sermon text, as we're wrapping up the book of 1 Peter, is 1 Peter 5, 6 through 14. And our plan, though, is to continue with Peter. Uh, we'll be just moving into his second letter as he kind of continues on some of the themes of the first, especially this one of having a living hope. He, he does shift focus a little bit, as we'll see, as he wants to warn us about the danger of false teachers and how we need to cling firm to the truth of the gospel, Uh, so it should be a good time as we continue through Peter's writings. But for now, we want to finish this first letter as he signs off here in 1 Peter 5. So beginning in verse 6, we read these words, Humble yourselves, therefore, The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will establish, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we ask now that as we have it proclaim that you would attend to that by your spirit so that it might minister grace to those who hear. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And so again, here we are at the end of Peter's first letter and he has certainly taught us a lot. He has proclaimed the the grandeur of the gospel, revealed the glories of Christ, uh, especially his suffering and his death and his glory after. He has explained to us blessing upon blessing that belongs to those who belong to God through faith in Jesus. He has confirmed the the reality of suffering in this life even for those who are the children of God and he's given instruction on how the church ought to live in a world of suffering in a world that hates everything about them because it hates everything about Jesus. And he summarizes all that he has written, all that he has laid out before us with those words in verse 12 I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. I have exhorted and declared that this is the true grace of God. And think back to everything he has taught. And the one thing that really stands out is the reality of suffering and our living hope. The fact that we do suffer in this life, especially for our faith in Christ, but we endure that by this hope of salvation that is ours, guarded in heaven our eternal reward of final salvation where all God's promises are ultimately fulfilled. And so, in other words, it seems then that this, this way of true grace that we are to walk, this way of grace of the gospel really is upside down and inside and out. It's a paradox of sorts because the way up to receive, to know, to enjoy God's glory is the way down through humbleness and suffering. And yet it is suffering that leads to rejoicing. And to have nothing is to have everything. And to carry a cross in this life leads to a victorious crown of glory. That is the way of grace, the true grace that Peter speaks of. And it is the grace in which he gives us one final encouragement and exhortation. He says, in that grace, stand firm. And he signs off his letter. So the point of this, as he concludes his letter, really is the point of this whole book of Scripture. And that is the, the way of grace, the path of the gospel does lead through hardship and difficulty and affliction and suffering, but it always will result in healing and rejoicing. And so as believers, you can stand firm that eternal grace of God and he lays this truth out to us in three ways by showing us what the grace of God awakens within our hearts first he shows us that the grace of God awakens an awareness of who God is so that we might humbly trust him and so he picks up right where he left off on this theme of humility that he spoke of in verse 5, where he laid out that that great theological principle that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And based on that, he says in verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. By now you'd think, well, Peter, you have said a lot about humility and submission. I mean, it does seem to be one of the, the dominant themes in this letter, that at least as a response of faith to, to God and what he calls us to. But Peter sees fit, at least, as he signs off this letter to tell us one more time, very carefully and compassionately to encourage us to be humble, to show humility towards God. And here's why I believe he does that. Because it's hard, it's hard to submit to the wisdom and sovereignty of God in your life when your life takes a downward turn as it was for Peter's original readers, as it happens often in our lives. You see, when things go well, it's comfortable to trust God, isn't it? I mean, we have no problem affirming his sovereignty and his providence when we feel secure and stable. And we will confess that he is most holy and wise in the powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and their actions when the sun is shining upon us. But when the storm clouds gather, it then becomes very difficult to trust his wisdom and his power and control over all things. And as we noted, Peter's audience, those in ancient Turkey were beginning to feel that storm as the pressure came upon them and they felt that they were living in this, this hostile society They could smell the embers of persecution burning. Life looked like it was about to get very difficult indeed. Peter has not been promising them their best life now because that is not the gospel. But he has been promising them hope in Jesus. But that hope would come through affliction And sorrow. They would be mocked. They would be slandered. They they would be thrown upon the garbage heap of the societal ladder. Because of their exclusive faith in Jesus. And that didn't mesh well with the popular mind of the day. But when that happens. When you feel that pressure. It does become hard to trust the wisdom. And the power and the sovereignty of God in your life. But it is in those moments that we need to trust his providence the most. And so Peter encourages us here. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's an interesting phrase. We see it most often in the Old Testament. In fact, the only time we see it verbatim in the New is right here in Peter's first letter. But we definitely sense that it is implied elsewhere in the New Testament the mighty hand of God speaks of God's judgment as well as his deliverance. It is all his actions of grace, everything he does to accomplish his purposes, to redeem a people for his name from the bondage of their own sin and Satan and suffering and death. So for example, we read in Exodus 13, 9, which of course is speaking of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt, We read these words, For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. And if we go to the table of the law in Deuteronomy 5, and we come to the command to keep the Sabbath as a day of rest and remembrance, we find that it is predicated upon God's mighty hand of deliverance. So Deuteronomy 5.15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. It was God's mighty hand that grants the rest and grace to his people. And so Peter here is calling us then to place ourselves under that mighty hand of God that is both a judge, but also our deliverance, who works deliverance in our lives for the sake of our salvation. And when you do that, when you... You trust God's wisdom and sovereignty in your life, even through the difficult seasons. As Peter says, it will result in God lifting you up. So he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. And of course, he's talking again about that future vindication of your faith that comes at the appearing of Christ when the grace of the gospel is fully realized. And thus, we are to humbly trust God and the result of that humble trust will be future glory as we are made like Christ. And so, yes, the way down truly is the way up. But what does this humble trust of faith look like? Well, Peter tells us in verse seven, he says, casting all your anxieties, as you humble yourself, you are casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. All anxieties. That's what he's trying to emphasize here. Everything that troubles your heart and your soul and your mind. It's more than just a feeling Of anxiety that comes over you. But this idea of all anxieties is is all of your doubts, all of your discouragements that overcome your hearts and weary you and pull you down. And so, all those cares, that's what we are to cast. Or, literally, the idea is to throw with great force upon God. There's a sense of desperation here. It's like saying, Lord, I can't deal with this. Here, you take it. I can't handle it. And that's what God wants to hear. He wants to hear that because that is our humility. It's us coming to the end of our rope and saying, Lord, I can't do this, but I know you can. And the Lord wants to hear that because as Peter says, he actually cares And notice, he doesn't just generally care, but Peter says he cares for you. For you. It's personal care. Care for his people. He is, after all, your father, and you are his son or daughter by his grace through faith in Christ. So we are aware then, by grace, By the grace of the gospel, we are made aware of who God is, a caring and compassionate Father. And being aware of that, we certainly can cast all of our fears and frustrations and faults and discouragements and doubts and difficulties upon him, which of course is going to take humble faith, submitting to God's powerful hand. So grace awakens an awareness of who God is so that we can humbly trust him. Secondly, grace awakens an awareness of who your adversary is so that you can steadfastly resist him. First Peter 5, 8-9, through nine, Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I mean, Peter likes to use the same phrases and words again and again, it seems. We've noticed that. Here's another familiar word. He speaks again about being sober-minded. Something we saw back in verse 13 of chapter one and also recently in verse seven of chapter four. It's that call for for clear thinking, the life of a mind that isn't distracted or clouded by other things, being sober-minded beings, that we are not being controlled by things that would influence us and our desires to distract us from God's mercy and grace in the gospel. And this time he calls for this sober-mindedness to also be coupled with watchfulness, Now, Peter understood something about being alert and watchful, or at least the danger of failing to be alert and watchful. After his final earthly meal with Jesus and the other disciples before the crucifixion, he goes with Jesus to Gethsemane, there to pray with Jesus. And it is in that garden, that beautiful setting that this intense spiritual battle is taking place, for the Son of God is about to submit himself to the will of the Father and give himself as a ransom for many. But Peter, as a disciple of Jesus, wasn't ready for that spiritual battle. His mind was not prepared. He was not watchful. His spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak, and Peter chose sleep. Over prayer. Since that day, though, Peter has grown in the grace of the Lord, and he recognizes now the need to be watchful and sober-minded. This is so needful because of who the Christian's enemy is. Any soldier from any part of the world will tell you that a fundamental aspect of being in a dangerous situation is to be clear, alert, and ready for the enemy at all times. And this is exactly what Peter is exhorting us to as believers of Christ. He says that the devil is an adversary of God's people. The word adversary was originally a term that designated the antagonistic accuser in a case of litigation. It eventually came to mean a hostile enemy. And so Peter likens this enemy, this adversary, who is Satan, to a roaring lion. A lion's roar, of course, is intended to incite fear, worry, and panic. And so we finally see then the source of All the hostility of the kingdom of this world, where it really comes from, it comes from that old adversary, the devil, who has been roaring from the garden against the people of God. He has been roaring against the church to create fear and drive us away from our faith in Jesus. And this roar is the temptation to to compromise our conviction, to abandon the gospel of grace under the pressures that society launches at us. For some believers, that has been imprisonment and the threat of death. But for many, many, it has simply been the temptation to capitulate to a world that mocks us and ostracizes us and pressures us to conform to their sense of morality, their sense of what is right and true instead of what God declares is right and true. And to abandon our faith in order to be accepted by the broader culture. That is the roar of the lion. Using the image of a lion is is, is purposefully interesting. Jesus is also portrayed, as you are, I'm sure, aware, as a lion. In fact, if you go to Revelation 5, Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has conquered. And... Jesus, being likened to a lion, speaks, of course, of his power and his might and the reality that he has conquered sin, death, and Satan himself. The image of the Lord being like a lion is is not limited, though, only to the New Testament. We can go back to the prophets, for example, Amos 1-2, where we hear the Lord roars like a lion from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Now, here's the difference, though, between Jesus and Satan when they roar. Satan roars like a lion because he wants to be the lion. His roar is one of deceit. He is trying to use trickery to cause people to follow him by fearing him instead of following the true lion who is Jesus. It's interesting that C.S. Lewis, and here's another Narnia illustration, I know, but C.S. Lewis picked up on this theme in the book, The Last Battle. If you've ever read it, um, and I'm gonna give spoilers because it's been out for many years. If you haven't read it, that's your fault. In the book, The Last Battle, there is a talking ape because all the creatures in Narnia are talking animals that are the citizens of Narnia. Shift, the talking ape, has a friend who is Puzzle the donkey. And he comes across, both of them, this old lion skin. And Shift tells Puzzle to wear the lion skin in order to pretend to be Aslan, the great lion, for Aslan had not been seen in Narnia for many, many years. And so he does. And the intention of this is to gain power and control over all the other creatures of Narnia. And Lewis describes the scene. He says, no one who had ever seen a real lion would have been taken in for a moment. But if someone had never seen a lion, looked at Puzzle in his lion's skin, he just might mistake him for a lion. If he didn't come too close, and if the light was not so good, And if Puzzle did not let out a bray and did not make any noise with his hooves, and they were able to deceive many people in Narnia. Well, Satan does this same thing. He tries to make us think he is the true lion. He tries to make us think he would be the better Christ. He wants our hearts and he wants our worship and he will roar loudly trying to convince us that he is the lion we should fear and we should follow. But if, by God's grace, you have seen the true lion and you know his might and his power and what he has done in your life and the lives of all who are his, you do not fear this fake lion and his roar. Instead, you stand firm Against him, you stand firm in your faith. You stand firm in all the promises of God to you that are unshakable and unchanging. You rest completely in the work that Jesus has done on your behalf. And part of that resting upon faith is understanding who your adversary is. He's just a fake lion who is already a defeated adversary. Oh, he may roar and he may accuse you and throw all sorts of accusations against you before the throne of God, but Jesus, your advocate, not your adversary, the true lion, who is also a lamb, stands up to him and utterly disarms him on your behalf. And we get a picture of that in John's vision of the throne room of heaven in Revelation 12. Where we read, and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now. Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. That has already happened. It happened at the cross when Christ defeated sin and Satan and death. Forever, Satan is our defeated adversary. And so rather than abandoning the gospel, when we hear the lion's roar because we are afraid of the hostility of this world, we must embrace that grace that God gives us all the more. We must stand firm in our faith and resist the roar of that fake lion. The accusations against us as God's people are empty and powerless. And even as we see our brethren suffer through all the world, as Peter writes here, we understand that that suffering is but for a moment. We know that if we do humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God in faith, he will lift us up in due time. Because by His grace, we have been awakened to the reality of who our adversary is, an already defeated foe. And so grace then awakens an awareness of who your adversary is so that you can resist him in faith whenever he wars. And grace awakens an awareness of who God is so that you can humbly trust Him when life is easy and when it is hard. And this brings us to the very last thing that Peter wants us to understand about this way of grace, this way of the gospel that we believe and follow. And that is this, is that grace awakens an awareness of what God will do because of what he has already done so that you can have peace. Peter shifts from exhorting us to have faith through humility and steadfastness, resisting our adversary, to now encouraging us once again by reminding us what God has done on our behalf. So he says in verse 10, after and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And so here at the very end of his letter, what does he do? He takes us all the way back to where he started. That was with the grace of God to you. Every gracious action in your life of the gospel flows through God to you. Because he is, as Peter says, the God of all grace. He is a gracious God. It is part of who he is. And so from that grace, as Peter writes, he has called every believer. In most English translations of the Bible, when you look at verse 10, it's interesting that the translators put this little phrase about suffering for a little while first. And and that is to help with the flow of language. It's, it's, It's awkward, it's harder to translate the way it's actually written and what Peter intended to emphasize here. But when you look at it in the original language, it isn't our suffering for a little mile that he wants us to focus on. Because he starts this sentence by telling us about the God of all grace, who has done what? He has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That's what he wants you to focus on. Not the suffering, but the God of all grace who has called you. So you may suffer for a little while in this life, because after all, we are sojourning as exiles here, awaiting the final glory of Christ to be revealed when he returns. But what he wants you to remember is, God has already called you. It's what he has already done. He has chosen you to be his child from eternity past. And he did that not based on anything that you have done or will do or have failed to do, he simply did it on the basis of his amazing grace. He has called you. And based on that truth, Peter then bursts forth into this rhetorical crescendo pointing us to the future fulfillment of God's grace. says, because God has called you, because he's chosen you, Because he's been gracious to you, because he's made you his possession, his people, called by his name, his holy nation, his royal priesthood. He, because he's done all that, he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And all those actions, they're all synonymous. They're all talking about the same thing. They are all synonymous with our future hope, our final salvation. Uh, To restore speaks of healing or mending, literally the the setting of a broken bone. And so those who suffer and are broken will suffer no more when grace is finally fulfilled. And we will be restored. To, To confirm speaks of being fixed or fastened into place. Because Jesus was fastened to a cross for you, he then fastens you to the presence of God forevermore. And strengthen and establish, those are both construction terms. They they hearken back to that truth that we saw that God's people are like living stones being built upon the chief cornerstone that is Christ, as we form this temple, this great cathedral of God's people, where he communes with us in our midst. He secured you into place, sealed you in with the mortar of his grace and mercy forever. And how do we know that is all true? How can we be certain? Because after all, he's speaking in the future here. He will restore. He will confirm and strengthen and establish. We know it is true because we've already been called. We are certain of what God will do because of what he has already done. And that is why Peter led with that God of all grace has called you. It's already done. And so if you belong to God, you already know this to be true. You see, God is already at work in you to do all these things to restore you and confirm you and strengthen you. And so when you are filled with Cares and anxieties, you can throw them upon the Lord who truly cares for you. And when your life takes that difficult turn, you can humbly trust the mighty hand of God is at work in your life. When you hear the the roar of your adversary, the lion in this world, you don't have to fear it, but you can resist him in faith because you know He has already been defeated. And when you suffer affliction here on this earth, especially for your faith in Christ, you can be certain that it is worth it all. For the God who has called you by his grace will keep you in his grace and will ultimately restore you in that grace. And that is why Peter's last exhortation to us in verse 12 is stand firm, in the grace of God. See, everything else in life will crumble and shift and fail. You can't stand firm in them. But Jesus never fails you. You can stand firm in him. And so Peter signs off with a benediction, which are words of a gracious blessing. He says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace. That that, that freedom from fear and anxiety and striving and conflict that we all long for and desire. And that peace comes to those who are in Christ. That's the grace in which we stand. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. We know what God has done for us in Christ. And so we can be at peace knowing what God will do for us in Christ as we continue on this sojourn, this exileship in this world. Because eternal peace is already ours. Eternal peace is the end of the way of grace. So true grace will lead you to humble yourself before God as we trust in him who cares for us. And true grace will keep you alert and sober-minded knowing that you do have an adversary who has already been defeated, and so you can overcome him through faith in Christ. And true grace points you to what God has done so that you might be confident of what is, he is doing and will do, which leads you to real peace. See, the way of the gospel of grace, it certainly isn't what we often expect. We do go down so that we might go up. We are broken so that we might be healed. We will suffer. We are humiliated so that we might be exalted and glorified and lifted up and know everlasting victory. We bear a cross so that one day we might wear a crown. We face strife so that we can know peace. But in the end, there is no better way than the way of grace. There is no better path to follow because everything else never takes you where you need to go. It never takes you away from that suffering and that affliction and that sin and from the roar of the lion. Instead, it steers you right into them. Trying to deal with the afflictions of life and the suffering of the world and the sin in our own hearts without the grace of God in Christ Jesus only leads to more affliction and suffering and sin. And in the end, there is only death, eternal death. But in Christ, there is life and peace and joy forevermore. And so brothers and sisters, as Peter said, stand firm in the grace of God. Stand firm. Keep walking the way of the gospel Through all of the ups and downs and twists and turns, keep walking in the gospel when that fake lion roars at you. Keep walking in the gospel. And one day, this sojourn will come to an end. And we who are exiles will take that foot over the threshold of that city that God has prepared for us. And we will be finally home. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word once again and the grace, the amazing grace of the gospel. Although this is not something we could achieve in our own ends, we could not take the steps to reach this peace and to enter into the beauty of that city, that inheritance of your glory that you have prepared for us. But you, O God, can lead us. And you lead us often, Through times of suffering and sometimes having to carry a cross, but we do so in faith, knowing that the end is in sight, and when we see Jesus, it truly will be worth it all. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.